This episode of Bossable Podcast is sponsored by Zervant, the company behind the best invoicing software for small businesses and freelancers. Zervant is the easiest and fastest way to create and send invoices. It takes under one minute to create one. Just add a customer, add your products, hit send, and you're done. The company has been on a mission to help entrepreneurs succeed since 2010, and they've come far. Zervant is perfect for my small business. It's easy to use and very intuitive, said one of their customers. So go ahead and try Zervant for free. Go to Zervant.com, that's Z-E-R-V-A-N-T.com, and start getting paid for your work. You are listening to the Boss Level Podcast. And in this podcast, we've often talked about systems thinking, but mostly in the context of organizations. But in this episode, we're going to take a look at systems on a much bigger scale. We're going to talk about the systems that sustain life on Earth. My guest today is Leila Ajaralu. Leila's background is in industrial design and sociology. Her recent work is about how we can use design to make our life on Earth more sustainable. As a result of this interview, I am now the proud owner of a Keep Cup, which is a reusable coffee cup, and I will be trying to eliminate or at least cut down on my use of disposable coffee cups. Hope you like the episode. Most of my work is really focused on how we can design a future that works better for all of us by meeting the needs that human have without actually destroying the systems that sustain life on earth. So whether that be in the way we produce everyday consumer goods or how we conceptually reconfigure our economy so that we are much more um, in line with the resources that are available to us in the present day so that the decisions that we make currently aren't going to have negative impacts on future generations. Okay. Can you talk a little more about that, like your definition of the term design in this context? Essentially, the entire material world, our experiences of the world as humans are scripted by the professional practices of design. Um, And that is something that I think most people are kind of disconnected with. They don't realize that from the moment we're born to the moment we die, a lot of our lives are impacted by the designed world. And so there's that element of design, um, how we construct the uh, material world around us as humans to meet our needs. And aside from that, it also impacts the planet. So the things that we create ultimately have to come from nature and will be returned to nature. And what we forget is that in that extraction, manufacturing, use, and then end of life, we are essentially destroying or altering the systems that sustain humans. And every human, no matter who you are, requires oxygen, uh, fertile soil, and fresh drinking water to survive. And without those three things, we're all kind of screwed. So it's really important that we design things that meet our needs within the capacity of our planet to provide those services. And that's really what sustainable design or the circular economy is about. 
And the work that I do is to really try and give people the tools to enact that in their professional lives, whether they be a designer or whether they be a CEO of a multinational company or whether they be a government agency. So I try to create things that give people those tools and get them excited and and willing to be at the forefront of designing a future that we really want to live in. Yeah. And actually, uh, I think one of the tools that you use uh, in, in this work that you do is is basically you talk a lot about life cycle assessment and how we need to understand the the full life cycle and that just as a consumer, when we're in a store and we're trying to buy something and we're trying to make the right decision, but we're actually failing to look at the full life cycle. Can you talk a little about that? So what we do is we use this scientific approach called life cycle assessment to understand the way in which goods move through the economy have impacts on the natural environment by a number of impact categories, like there's like 90 or so. So it's not just looking at carbon emissions or the water impacts that I mentioned. It's also looking at things like acidity and rain acidity because that has impacts, toxicity, how much uh, biotoxicity ends up in the natural environment, which has impacts on humans. But the tool of life cycle thinking is kind of the It's really the extrapolated tool that anyone can use. You don't have to be a scientist to do it. I'll give you a couple of examples. So there's a big debate right now about plastic. Ocean plastic waste is a massive environmental problem. In the last few years, we've moved to this extremely disposable society in in Western cultures and in a lot of emerging economies too, where, for example, if you go to get a coffee, it's very likely that you're going to be getting it in a disposable paper cup, uh, even if you're sitting down in a coffee shop. So a paper coffee cup is unrecyclable because it's actually impregnated and lined with a plastic film in order to stop the um, coffee from basically falling through the paper. And so there's two things there. One, it makes it extremely difficult to separate the plastic and the paper, which makes it financially ineffective to recycle. But also the technology to do that is not available in most recycling facilities. So whilst there are some places that could do it, it's not. So the millions and millions and millions of paper cups used every single day in around the world are unrecyclable. And the worst thing about that is because they actually have little bits of coffee left in them, people throw them in their office uh, paper recycling, contaminating the rest of the paper. So there's this unintended consequence that occurs as a result of this assumption that the paper cup is better for the planet. And what we do life cycle assessments, we learn that actually that's not the case. And the amount of plastic used in lining those paper cups is almost the same as the amount of plastic that was used in the polystyrene because polystyrene is expanded with air. It's only usually 20 to 30% actual raw material. A lot of these uh, assumptions about material impacts have been disproven by this scientific process. But the moment you start thinking like this, now I've given you this tool, you're going to start looking at things around you and start thinking, do I actually know if that's good for the planet or not? And it really helps us to really get to the bottom of what we're doing as a material society, like how we're using materials and how we're maximizing the effectiveness of them and not accidentally creating bigger problems for ourselves that we have to deal with later down the track. Yeah. So how would this like, like, how can I do life cycle assessments when I'm in the store trying to buy something? (laughs) At the point of consumption, obviously more information available to the consumer would be good. And there's been some experiments with that. France did a big experiment with um, having uh, standardized life cycle assessments of products and then having those products be ranked with like a traffic light symbol so that you would essentially know whether or not the product you're buying has a bigger or lower impact. And that, as far as I know, is still being experimented with and it's difficult. So it's, it's, and also consumers need to, it's like a little bit like when you buy um, a product in 
you look at the nutritional rating, most people have no idea what the nutritional rating is on the, I don't, I mean, I'm confused by it. And so, you know, at the point of sale, a lot of the time consumers are overwhelmed. There's um, something called choice paralysis, a lot of uh, cognitive biases come into play when um, people are buying stuff. So it's very difficult actually to make a really, um, what's the word, like uh, environmentally kind of sound decision other than to say that as a general rule, if it's disposable and you're using it once, it's not going to be good for the planet full stop. However, you can swap out disposability for reusability or something that is disposable, maximize its utility by giving it a second or third life is a really kind of good basic uh, starting point. But also when it comes to buying things, there are some cues that you can look at, like uh, warranties. The duration of a warranty on a product tends to indicate how um, robust the design is. So if it's a short warranty, you could assume that the producer is not really willing to validate its product design for a longer period. And another thing that you can consider as well is the way in the price point. So the reality is, is that if something is very cheap, somewhere along the line, they've cut a lot of corners. But uh, yeah, just to answer your question, I'm not going to say it's easy and that a consumer can stand in a supermarket aisle and make a very, very informed decision. As someone who has an expertise in this area, I'm often overwhelmed by consumption choices. I know a little too much. Um, but to say it's a, it's, a, it's a relationship, really. What we spend our money on influences producers and producers equally need to have a little bit more ethics and, and consideration in the way that they're creating products for the marketplace. Actually, one of the concepts that you talk about that I really liked was uh, was the concept of environmental folklore that we actually use when we're making consumer decisions. Yeah, so all humans really like to feel content. You know, we are a beautifully complex species and the neurological experiences of interacting with the world mean that a lot of the time we rely on intuition or assumptions, uh, stereotypes, prejudices, all of these kinds of um, brain shortcuts essentially help us make sense of the world. You know, when it comes to those decisions that we make every day in, day out, we have to rely on quick assumptions. And environmental folklore is essentially saying that we have a lot of myths that are culturally um, permeated. So I think that those myths that become cultural memes that permeate, you know, oh, there's more energy used in storing solar than there is in fossil fuels. Some things are true early on, but we have to use our ingenuity and our innovation as a society and as a species to kind of push through that and learn what's better and what's better for us. And of course, in that process, we're always going to have discoveries that make us question what we already believed. And so that's really what the environmental folklore is, is most people don't question what they believe. And they kind of rely on this old thinking about the environment and the planet and what's good for us, rather than kind of being curious and inquisitive about the new information, what's just on the horizon of our discoveries as a species to help us live more sustainably and prosperously on the planet. That's really what we're trying to do is get people to be excited about the possibility rather than scared of it. Yes. One of the examples that you already gave about en environmental folklore is probably this uh, paper versus plastic, where, where we consider paper to be better or more recyclable than, than plastic, which is not necessarily the case. Are there any other examples that you can talk about uh, that you've learned through that, like people have an image that this is recyclable or this is sustainable, but when you look at the life cycle, it's not really true? Well, I mean... It's all about context, right? Like if we had a really effective closed loop recycling system, then 
essentially, if the materials were being biodigested in either a natural or a technical stream, we would be in a much better position. Globally, we have a massive crisis with recycling. In the last 10 years, most countries have been exporting their recycling to China. China recently banned the importation of uh, recycling, mainly because the contamination rate was so high that they were ending up with these huge amounts of unrecyclable materials. What we've seen is that globally where you have a net increase of um, like recycling, so in New York, for example, where there's, you know, a very efficient recycling system, that you've got a net increase in the disposable products. So in it, when you look at the whole system, you've actually had a bigger, worse impact on the planet, even if 100% of stuff was being recycled because there's still, you know, paper degrades over time. You can you have to always have virgin materials. So one of the big folklores is that recycling is the solution when actually it's part of the problem. Recycling validates waste. And that's really the issue that we're in right now is that we've learned that essentially we need to change the systems that give us the services we need, not just the materials. And that's this really hard thing to grapple with. And, and that's kind of what the circular economy and this big movement that's happening right now some of the biggest companies in the world and certainly the European Union are essentially saying the only way we're going to meet our material needs and not destroy the systems that sustain life on earth is if we redesign our economic delivery systems to be circular. Because right now the way we deliver things is linear, meaning that you take things out of the ground, you process them into usable goods, and then they end up in another hole in the ground. Or even if they get recycled, they go back into the stream, but the degree of recycling is still quite low. Like the most effective recycling markets is still only about 60% recaptured material and reused. This just reminded me of this uh, study that I read somewhere where like uh, a kindergarten implemented this policy that if you're late to pick up your child, then you have to pay a fine for, for that because then the uh, like the employees have to stay late and, and so on because you're late in picking up your child. And when they implemented the fine, what actually happened was that people were more often late in picking up their children. And the reason, the reason was that because when you had the fine, you kind of felt that, okay, I'm paying them for them to like wait for me. So now, exactly. now it's okay. <laughs> it's the action. It validates it. Oh, it's recyclable. Therefore, it's okay. That's yeah. what people say. Like if I'm at the supermarket and I refuse a bag, they go, but it's paper. And I look at them and I'm like, oh my God, you have to watch my TED talk. That is amazing, that example about the kids, because that means that parents then are like, oh, it's just a tax on having my kids looked after longer, right? Yep. Nope. So that assumption, oh, I'm paying an extra $10. Yeah, it's not a fine. It's just, a, it's an expense for having my kids looked after longer, right? Nope. That's crazy. Nope. So that's a, that's a pretty big myth to, to talk about that like recycling is actually a myth. And I like how you talked about the way that we should change design is that we should not only look at the product, but we should also be looking at kind of the service or the whole whole system around the product and try to figure out how can we make it a closed system where we're actually also, we're, we're not just pushing the, the decisions about the product to the consumer, but we're actually building products that have a closed loop where the material and the product can also be reused after its use. Yeah. And there's many strategies around that. Ultimately, it depends on the product category and the material choices and the functionality, right? So the delivery of coffee cup, for example, there's a really popular company in Australia called Keep Cup. It's a fully reusable, like you buy it and you reuse it, but they also developed the culture around that for the baristas and the people making coffee and that whole system. So it's a very, very popular um, product now in Australia 
and it's helped really reduce disposable cups. It still hasn't fully solved the problem. So I think you have to think differently about these problems that we face. You know, I think traditionally sustainability or conserving the environment has always been pitched as this boring, like zero waste, reducing things, giving up stuff, rather than it as an exciting opportunity for designing the world in a better way. Some of the decisions that we've made in the last 10, 20 years have been things that have taught us that maybe it's not the best way to do things. And my big initiative around the disposability culture is this idea of a post-disposable future and what we have to design in order to get there. Because I think every human can agree that waste and trash and disposable, it's a, it's a plague. Like we hate it. Who likes taking the trash out? Nobody. It's gross. It smells bad. It looks bad. Nobody likes their streets to be littered. There's all of these externalities that we have designed accidentally into our systems. And the challenge now is for us to design them out in more effective ways, in ways that don't just kind of displace the responsibility to some other part of the system as it is right now. And you and I pay for the design failure of corporations through our taxes in waste removal. And that's a really big issue if you think about it. Like rather than us spending money on uh, healthcare or education, we spend it on trucks driving around, picking up our trash and burying it in giant holes in the ground that then leach toxic chemicals into our groundwater. It's absolutely crazy if you just look at it as a system. Like why would anyone design this? Yep. One of the things that you're kind of talking about is that we need to be able to look at the whole system and not just design this whole thing by, by only looking at our company or our, our product, but we need to look at the impact that our product and our company has on the on the bigger picture. And what, what's your experience with having these discussions with companies and how does, how does sustainability get prioritized in businesses? So there's a couple different fields. I find that companies and organizations that are at that pioneering stage, they've got a leader or a series of leaders within their organization who have like woken up one morning and gone, you know what, this doesn't make any sense. Like, what am I doing? And they really want to change their entire business structure. Personally, they're the most exciting ones to work with because they're really willing to be at the forefront of, of R&D and, and solving these problems and bringing the entire company along. Then you have other companies that are doing it kind of like to meet the basic requirements. And they're more frustrating because the way in which they approach the problem is like, how do we tick boxes to fill regulatory requirements or how do we kind of iterate at the edges? More and more, I, I seek to kind of work with the pioneers because when you work with them, they're really willing to embrace the ambiguity of the change that needs to happen. And they're much more focused on a longer term commitment to learning and iterating and designing systems change rather than just individual change. Um, and that's something that I think is changing, though, because the more industries we've had, some industries where we've had some really strong pioneers they've actually brought the entire industry up with them. You know, the apparel sector has really changed recently because some key players have done some really innovative and, and progressive things. So we've not talked about uh consumer decisions. We've talked about systems thinking. We talked about how, how we need to uh, design products differently. What are the concrete things that you're working on or the things that you're doing right now to, to help make this change in the world? As a designer, I design tools that are transferable that help people think differently. So there, a lot of these tools are kind of like gamified toolkits uh, that can be used to help create innovative thinking or that three-dimensional thinking. So I have something called designer size, which is all about 
using design as a kind of creative um, brain exercise. Um, I have something called the design play cards, which are really simple strategies designers can employ. And these are being used all over the world um, in different settings, whether it be educational or design studios or in businesses, which is really exciting because it's a way of me as a creative finding fun and engaging ways to help people think differently. And then I have a lot of handbooks. Actually, I'm about to release a fourth handbook in a series that I have on how to make change. And that one is actually on circular systems design. It um, walks uh, anyone new to this thinking through the whole process, the product service system, systems thinking. And that'll be out actually in a couple of weeks. You've also, you've started the Unschool. And can you talk a little about the Unschool and what, what, what is that and what do you do with the Unschool? Sure. So the Unschool is an experimental knowledge lab for adults. I founded it four years ago, mainly after my experiences personally with education. You know, I, I have a PhD. I've taught a lot in academia and in, in all different settings with kids, with adults. And I got really frustrated because I was seeing this kind of reductive thinking that we talked about being perpetuated. And rather than experience being used as kind of one of the key uh, educative tools and the Unschool of Disruptive Design teaches this methodology called the disruptive design method, which is a, a way of using uh, design and um, the stuff we talked about, life cycle and systems thinking as a tool to kind of reconfigure the world. But the most important thing about the Unschool is it's about peer learning and it's about experience. And it's very, um, very much focused on giving people the tools and the relationships that will help them make change. And we have hundreds and, uh, of alumni that have come to our face-to-face programs uh, from 42 countries around the world. And then we have thousands of people who have come through our online programs who are uh, probably, I don't know how many countries they're from, but it's what amazes me is that there are so many people in the world who are passionate about seeing the world work better, be more equitable, more ethical, and more sustainable. And whilst if you look at your Facebook feed or the media, you could be... Um, excused for thinking that the world is just full of disassociated, unhappy people with lots of problems and wars and and uh, crises left, right and centre. But actually we live in a really beautiful planet with a lot of very, very capable and committed people from the CEOs of major companies through to leaders in government and, and individuals on the ground who are all really interested in being part of a new type of business and uh, and community. And I find that that's really exciting. And that's something that the Unschool really helps catalyze is bring people who are interested in those things together and then uh, help them collaborate and work together on some of these big complex problems that we face as a species. And one of the tools that you use in your work is systems thinking. And well, systems thinking is a topic that has been discussed in this podcast several times, but can you still talk a little about uh, systems thinking in the context of your work? The basis of systems thinking is right now, most people look at the world as individual parts, right? We're taught that way. It's called reductionist thinking. It's part of the Newtonian worldview and how we do science. And we break the world down into manageable chunks, right? Like you cut a steak up so you can chew it. Unfortunately, the thing is, is that in doing that, we often eliminate or perceive the world in very narrow ways and eliminate the possibility to see the relationships and the connections between things rather than just the obvious chunks. And so when we do systems thinking, we see the whole made up of parts rather than individual parts um, operating in isolation. And when you see that whole, so the infinite possibility of the universe, and then, you know, being able to look at the, if you were to look under a microscope and see all the millions of microorganisms existing in symbiotic relationship to make something a reality, that kind of thinking, what I call three-dimensional thinking, 
it can be switched on in your head and it immediately changes the way you approach the problems immediately. And from the work that I do with the, the educational initiative I have called the Unschool through to the work I do with um, the disruptive design method, which is what we teach to help people think this way, it's literally like a switch change in your brain. You teach your brain to see the world as a complex, beautiful, dynamic, chaotic opportunity, not a confusing, overwhelming bits of chunks all kind of operating in isolation. And from that, you actually start to develop the ability to solve some of these really complex problems. So systems thinking, life cycle thinking, design, these are the three tools that really help organizations and individuals solve complex problems in ways that are exciting, innovative, and imaginative. That's great. Thank you. So there you have it. While recycling is a good thing, Recycling also validates waste. So instead of just improving on our recycling, we should do our best to stop using disposable things. Carrying a reusable water bottle instead of buying a new one every time and using a keep cup instead of disposable coffee cups are my ways of getting started. Thank you for listening. If you like this episode, be sure to share it on social media. Have a great week.